and 20, and we'll close out this portion of Paul's argument that the whole world is in need of justification. Not just the immoralist, not just the moralist, but also the Jew. The entire world is in need of justification. Paul says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed, and that all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And with this, he closes out this section where the moralist is condemned, the immoralist is condemned, the moralist, the Jew. And now in verses 9 through 20, he, he is uh, claiming that the entire world is condemned, just in case we missed it. So in these last two verses... Of the first major section of Romans, Paul draws out the implications of the series of Old Testament quotations that he just made in verses 10 through 18. Had we had a, a two-hour class instead of a one-hour class, it would have been actually a lot better had, had we covered these two verses along with the verses from last week, because it's a flow. But what Paul did last week, he used several passages from the Old Testament, actually from the Psalms and from Isaiah, to help make his case that all are under sin. All are under the uh, penalty of sin. We're talking about all who are not justified, all who haven't trusted Jesus Christ. All are under the penalty of sin, all are under the power of sin, and all are under the presence of sin. There's one way out, and one way only. It's open to everybody. But there's only one way out of being under, underneath sin, and that's what Paul will talk about from here on, and that's justification by faith. He'll say, by grace through faith, in the book of, of Ephesians. Now, when, and when a person gets out from underneath sin by justification, uh, by the justification process, by grace through faith, they are underneath, out from underneath the penalty of sin immediately. They are coming to be un, out from underneath the power of sin, but the presence of sin, that will wait till we get to eternity. So Paul is going to draw out the implications of all that, of, of the verses that he has quoted now in these last uh, two verses of the section. Paul uses this Greek word oidomen, which is translated we know, and it introduces a circumstance that would be generally acknowledged by Paul and his original readers. It would be like me saying, now, we know it's raining outside, or it's been raining a lot outside lately. Everybody, if, if you've been outside and you have any uh, knowledge of what's going on, all you would say, well, yeah, I, I understand that. So Paul is, is moving now to very common ground something that everyone would know to finish out his argument. Anything that might not have been totally known by everybody up to now, he's, he's already covered that. He's made his point, and now he's going to uh, speak of things that should be self-evident based upon common knowledge. So Paul says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Actually, the Greek says literally in the law. Since in the preceding series of quotations, Paul doesn't quote from the Ten Commandments, and he also doesn't quote from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but only from Psalms and Isaiah, it's clear that here the term the law must refer to the Old Testament as a whole. And that's not that unusual. It happens quite a bit. It happened in John chapter 10, verse 34, and John chapter 15, verse 25. Also, Paul uses the, this, this terminology in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Verse 25, they all illustrate a similar use of the expression law for the entire Old Testament. So when you see the word law in the New Testament, you've got to, you have to, it's contextual. Sometimes it does refer only to the Ten Commandments. 
Other times it refers to the first five books, the Torah. And then other times, like now, it's referring to the entire Old Testament. Actually, there's a word, just I would say maybe a word to the wise, or something that you might be sensitive to culturally. When you're witnessing and conversing about spiritual things to a Jewish friend, it's probably wiser, instead of using the term Old Testament, you know, like the Old Testament says, it's probably wiser to, to use the term Hebrew Scriptures, you know, like the Hebrew Scriptures say. Uh, if you use the word Old Testament, you're immediately starting to fight right then, because you know, they, they would believe that that's the only Testament. So, and sometimes it's a really great idea to take them back, in my view. It's the greatest idea to take them back to the Hebrew Scriptures to show them how Father Abraham was saved. He wasn't saved by being Jewish. He was saved by grace through faith. And so just a, just an item for some cultural sensitivities. I'm a pretty sensitive kind of guy, and I think that it's uh, it's appropriate that we do that. I wish you'd have laughed for that, but, but, but uh, now I'm disappointed that you think I'm a sensitive guy. No, you were scared that I'd turn that way? That's cool, too. Um, the phrase that those who are under the law, this, this next part, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That's where we need to stop for just a moment and, and uh, spend a, a moment of discussion. There are two possibilities to what Paul is referring to here. He could be referring only to the Jews. You know, and there are people that feel like you know, the only people that the law was for were the Jews of the time. I'm not talking about this dispensation. But in other words, the Gentiles weren't affected by the Old Testament law at all. That's a possibility. Another possibility is that Paul is speaking about everybody. Everybody is under the law in the sense that Paul is talking about it here. And the flow of Paul's argument would really favor the latter, would really favor the fact that he's speaking of the whole world. When he says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, he's probably speaking to everybody. And I think that would fit the context now, that's the point that Paul began to make in chapter 1, verses 18 and following, and he's concluding it now. But, it, but as he did, starting in verse 9 and going all the way through the end of the chapter, while he's speaking of the whole world, it does appear that one of the people that seems to be giving him the most objection, at least in the way he's formulating this argument and the flow in his mind, is the Jewish person. So while he is speaking to the whole world, he might be speaking to the world, but maybe making eye contact with that lone Jewish holdout. Can you kind of picture that? So it's, it's the whole world, but it's, it's got a Jewish flavor to it. Okay. The Jew, although, seeing as how Paul's making a lot of eye contact with him, the Jew might object that the passages that Paul just quoted, again, verses 10 through 18, don't refer to the Jew specifically, but only condemn the Gentile. And that's possible. However, while not all the passages cited were originally directed to Israel as a whole, they are indeed speaking to both Jews as well as Gentiles. So Paul's taking away that argument too. You know, because the Jew may say, hey, listen, I appreciate your argument up till now, but all those passages you just, you just mentioned, they could all be referring to Gentiles alone. And Paul would answer back, but you know better than that. They're referring to you as well. Here, here's the everybody argument again. And so Paul is not going to let the Jew off the hook that easily. But looking at it from the other perspective, 
And remember, Paul is ministering to a great deal, a great number of Gentiles as well in the city of Rome. The law was God's special self-revelation, and it was given to the Jews. But it was God's intention that it be disseminated among the Gentiles. True, there are some aspects of the law that were specific to the nation Israel. There were some aspects of the law that were designed to make Israel a peculiar people unto her neighbors. For example, not eating pork. Uh, you know, if you eat pork today, you don't have to confess that as a sin. That was one aspect of the law that was, that was there to make Israel peculiar to her neighbors because her neighbors sacrificed pigs to their gods. And so Yahweh told the people of Israel, then you don't have anything to do with pork at all. Now, you may not eat pork now for health reasons, and that may or may not be what what uh, uh, be right for you, but, but there were some aspects specific to Israel. However, God's self-revelation was for all mankind, for everyone. So when God speaks, all better listen, not just a few. So the Gentiles, too, were not going to be let off the hook by Paul. The Gentile couldn't say, hey, I didn't have the law. Because what did they have? Remember, they had the law written on their hearts. So they had no excuse either. Paul has taken away the excuses for both of them. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And in this case, it's all of humanity with a special view toward the Jew, but certainly all of humanity. Now, there's a reason why Paul writes this. That, or in order that, every mouth may be closed, and that all the world may become accountable to God. Key words in that sentence, every mouth and all the world. The way Paul puts this in Greek, pas ho cosmos, all the world, makes certain that we understand that there are no exceptions. Before we leave this part of Romans, you've got to have that down. Otherwise, the rest is not going to make as much sense to you as it ought to. Paul is saying there are no exceptions to the principles that I've set forth. He's going to make sure we understand that in verse 23 when he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but he wants us to know all men have a need for justification, and women and children and everybody else. All have a need for justification. That's why he says every mouth may be closed. There's no one that can make an argument to God and argue back with God. And that the whole world may become accountable to God. So we understand this now, that there are no exceptions in Paul's argument. Jews and Gentiles were on equal terms when it comes to the judgment of God. Now this word that Paul uses for judgment, hypodikos, means pertaining to being subject to justifying behavior before a court of justice answerable to, liable to judgment. This figure that Paul is using is very dramatic. It's fear-inspiring, and it's unforgettable. Everyone, or at least this is the way Paul is picturing it here, everyone is standing in front of God, the judge. Everyone. And again, in Paul's context, this is everyone who has not been justified by grace through faith. Everyone will be there. The records are read. An accusation of guilt is made. And the judge would say, what is your response to that? Their response is going to be silence. When it gets right down to it, there's no one that's going to be able to argue with God. 
Shutting the mouth connotes the situation of the defendant who has no more to say in responses to the charges brought against him or her. This Greek word that's, uh, that's translated accountable occurs nowhere else in the scriptures. But in extra-biblical Greek, it was used to mean answerable or liable to prosecution. Paul pictures God as both the one offended and as the judge who weighs the evidence and pronounces the verdict. It would be similar to where if you had a, and I'm putting this on a very base level, but if you had an altercation with your next-door neighbor about a fence, you decided to go to court over it, and it turns out your next-door neighbor was the prosecuting attorney and the judge, and it was going to be a trial by judge, not by jury. Okay? You know, once the accusation is made, then, then you're probably in a bit of trouble. Well, here, in a very righteous way, the one who has been offended by our sin is ultimately God. And he also happens to be the accuser and the judge here as well. This, I guess what I'm trying to, to point out and what Paul is too, this is not a good situation. This is really, really bad. It should be very scary. I wonder sometimes, I mean, me personally, talking with people about the Lord and listening to people that have, about the conversations they've had with others, boy, it doesn't seem like people take it very seriously. It's, it's, it should be a very serious issue in people's lives. Because short of the rapture of the church, we're all checking out of here. Everyone that has ever lived up until now, with maybe you know, the exception of Enoch or Elijah, depending on how we interpret those things, but they've all died. So what makes you think you're any different? It's going to happen. And then there is the what happens after that. So this is something that the way Paul presents it should be, should be very, very troubling. The image then is of all humanity standing before God, accountable to him for willful and inexcusable violations of his will, awaiting the sentence of condemnation that their actions deserve. Everybody is there that has not trusted Jesus Christ. In the future, this scene is actually going to unfold at the great white throne judgment outlined in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, and we have time. You might want to just flip over there with me as I read it and picture this very serious scene as John reveals it as well. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, and remember that this is a passage for the unbeliever only. There will be no believers in Jesus Christ present, at least not, not in any kind of way that they're awaiting judgment. It's a possibility that we may be off watching this from a distance the scriptures never say so it's futile to speculate but John says and I saw a great white throne that's where we get the term great white throne judgment and I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it whose presence earth and heaven fled away at whose presence and no place was found for them and I saw the dead the great and the small standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. Now, some people have interpreted this in, in a variety of ways. Uh, particularly, some, some interpret this as being their good deeds. But there's no justification for that in the text at all. It's all their deeds. The entirety of their life is going to be judged. And are you going to be found justified before God after that entire evaluation? 
Well, no, you're not. In, in, in verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them again, according to their deeds, the entirety of their life. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, I hope you would see, it's a very serious scene, is it not? Hell's very real. Hell's very literal. And hell lasts forever. One time the, the founder of the Methodist Church, John Wesley, wrote many, many years ago, the reason he felt like more people don't tell their family and friends about Jesus Christ is that in the back of their minds they really don't think hell is real. There is no literal hell. Because if we ever did come up with the come to the conclusion that the scriptures give us that hell is a literal place and that it's not extinguished it doesn't go out after a thousand years it's just as permanent as heaven if we ever came to that realization according to Wesley we probably would be more bold in our personal evangelism because we wouldn't want anybody to go there it's a very serious situation and there's also a sense of urgency in Paul's presentation back in Romans chapter 3 now. Just like the college student who puts off studying for the final exam until the night before the test, maybe you were that kind, I don't know. But many people put off thinking about eternity until they're told they'll enter it very soon. And then when they look back at their life, they often found often find that too much of the time here was spent in activities that have no bearing on eternity whatsoever. In that sense, those folks would evaluate their time here with regret. I've always wondered about that. I've always wondered about people that wait to the last minute and then take something like where you're going to spend eternity seriously. But a lot of people do. While both Romans 3, at least Romans 3 backwards, and Revelation 20 speak specifically of the unbeliever. And I want to make sure you understand that's the context here. It's the great white throne. But application can be made for us as well, for believers as well. Because while we will not all stand, while none of us will stand before the great white throne judgment, and that's a guarantee, we will stand before another throne of judgment or evaluation. That's the BEMA, B-E-M-A, or the judgment seat of Christ. And our lives will be evaluated as well. The entirety of our lives will be evaluated. Not with regard to receiving eternal life. That's a done deal. You, once you trust Christ, you've got it. And you will not appear at the great white throne. But you will appear at the judgment seat of Christ. And Christ will evaluate what it is we did with what we're given. As you consider that tonight, I'm sure that all of us have some regret about lost time or wasted time we could have all done better but how tragic it would be for you I'm talking to believers now and the judgment seat of Christ how tragic it would be to get to the end and to realize that we've never really lived we never really lived for something that was important oh there were some successes along the way and some money was made but but I promise you that money's going to stay here when you die and those successes, unless they were spiritual successes, really don't mean much when compared to eternity. 
So the same sense of seriousness that Paul portrays with regard to the unbeliever at the great white throne, we should take with regard to living our lives moment by moment when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ. And while there are many unbelievers that don't really consider their eternal future until they're told that they're going to enter eternity fairly soon, there are far too many believers that don't really consider how long eternity is and how important it is until we get right to the end. One of the things that I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about is, is that period of time between youth and when you become a parent yourself and start raising children, maybe late 20s, early 30s, that seems to be lost, wasted years for way too many people. I mean, it's very, very common. Your parents bring you to church. Maybe you wanted to go. Maybe you didn't want to go. Maybe you felt like you were drugged there. But the minute you get a chance to make your own decision, baby, I'm out of here. Now, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and, and it's a, you've already trusted Jesus Christ. That's a sure thing. But look at the time that's wasted, say, from age 16 to age 30, when finally you look at your kids and say, you know, I think I need to get them in church. They, they need that. Well, I've heard it bunch they i need to get in church for my kids no you need to get in church for you you need to get in the word for you you're older than they are you're going to see eternity most likely before they do most likely you're the one that better get with it the poet said only one life will soon be passed only what's done for christ will truly last so I would just urge you while we're taking this short excursus, make it count. Make every single day count. Now back to Paul's argument in Romans chapter 3 as we close down this section of the text. Paul says in verse 20, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is the third time that Paul has brought up the concept of justification in the letter, at least using that word in this letter. The first was Romans 2.13, the second was Romans 3.4, and now we have it in Romans 3.20, the specific use of this word. Romans 3.4 is not pertinent to our argument right now, but Romans 2.13 sure is. Look, at, look back at Romans 2.13, it's probably just one page back. Paul says here, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, or justified, same word, same root, but the doers of the law will be justified. You catch that? I want you, this is going to be an exegetical exercise. I know it's toward the end. I've already used up all your, uh, a lot of your mental reserves by giving you that test earlier. But I'm going to make you do a little exegesis. I'm going to, we're going to all be exegetes tonight for just a minute. I'm going to give you a, an exegetical problem, and I want you to be able to think through it and tell me how we would solve it. In Romans 2:13. Paul says the doers of the law will be justified. Okay, you got that? Now, in our passage, Paul says, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Okay. On the surface, you might take those as contradictory. But since God's not the author of confusion and the Holy Spirit's the one that wrote this, and I assure you it's the same in Greek as it is in English, so we can't go back to the original languages and try to pull a rabbit out of a hat there, how could both of those statements be true? The first statement, the doers of the law will be justified, 
The second statement, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. How can those two statements be reconciled? We'll cut, we'll cut the names out of the tape, so don't, don't, don't be embarrassed about answering it. Yeah. Well, that's one. Yeah, you've got a good memory. That's, that is one end to the law. And we see that from Deuteronomy 18.15, that the law was to lead us to Christ. But since that was, um, uh, we're going to take that as a side issue right now, and um, that's, you get an A for that. But if we set that aside for just a moment, and, and still looked at the argument that Paul says, the doers of the law will be justified, but by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified, because it still looks like a contradiction even with that. How, how might we reconcile those things? Well, those who do the law will be justified. No one is going to do the law perfectly. That's why Paul says, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. You see how they're both true statements? If you did the law perfectly, theoretically, you would be justified. But Paul says, by the works of the law, nobody's going to do it. So all that means is that nobody could do it perfectly. Nobody with one exception, who you know who that is. That's Jesus Christ. There's only one exception to these two statements, and that's, or to the second statement, that's Jesus Christ himself. So both statements are true. It's like, if you did the law perfectly, perfectly, you'd be justified, but starting right off the bat, God's going to tell us, but nobody's going to do the law. Nobody. And that's what he's been saying for all these uh, many verses, starting in verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understand. There's none who seeks after God. So that's how both statements can be true. Paul's argument, in the end, is irrefutable. By the works of the law, no one can ever be justified in God's sight. Now, by the works of the law, can you be justified in my sight? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. And I think that's what's going on in, in James when when James is talking about Abraham being justified by works. That's not for eternal life. That's a different kind of justification. So you can be justified in man's sight by keeping the law or portions of the law imperfectly. That's certainly what the Pharisees tried to do, but not in God's sight. Yes, why not? Well, consider for a moment what the law demands. Nothing less than this, that a person love God with all his heart, his soul, his mind, and his strength and that he love his neighbor as himself perfectly, by the way. But that's, that's just the basic aspect of the law. And I think all of us would, would bow our heads and say uh, guilty to that. So Paul has shown that it is exactly this love that was lacking on the part of both Gentiles and Jews. The Gentiles, remember, they didn't give thanks back in Romans one twenty one. And the Jew, they had a hard and unconverted heart in chapter 2, verse 5. So he's made it clear that every person stands condemned before God in Romans 3.9 and Romans 3.19. To sum it up, he stands condemned because of sins of commission, but also by sins of omission. Not only because of his sins in open and in public, but also because of the evil he commits in secret He's condemned in God's sight, not only because of what he says and does, but also because of what he is, what we are, even when we're born. Paul's going to call us enemies of God, not even neutral later on. He's going to say, we were, while we were yet enemies, we shouldn't flatter ourselves because we're born into a sinful state. So that's Paul's argument 
that everyone is condemned. And there's a final phrase here, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. One might ask at this point, well, what does the law do? Is it, is it good at all? And Paul's going to bring that up again in Romans chapter 7, so we'll reserve the bulk of the discussion for that topic for that time. But at least we'll take one look at the law here. Some, some people in Paul's audience were saying, well, the law must be bad. And Paul says, heaven forbid, it's not bad. God wrote it. You know, don't ever, just because we live in the dispensation of the grace of God, consider that the Mosaic law was an evil thing. Of course not. It was God's standard. It was his revelation. Not evil at all. But Paul will talk about that more in Romans 7, so we'll wait for that time. But there are many things that the law is good for. But among them is the fact that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law, among other things, points the unbeliever to the fact that they need a Savior. And that's where the Pharisees of Jesus' time messed up. See, they thought that they could keep part of it, put on the flowing robes, put their chin up in the air, walk around town like they were hot stuff, because they had kept most of the law. And Jesus comes right back in their face and said, you didn't keep it all. And matter of fact, you're not keeping near as much as what you think you're keeping because you're not shepherding my sheep like they ought to be shepherded. You're not exercising love toward God or toward your fellow man. So they lost on all accounts. So the law points to the fact that the unbeliever points to the fact that they need a Savior. If all you had of the book of Romans was chapter 1, verse 18 through 320, you'd, you'd come away with a pretty negative feel, wouldn't you? Because it's the bad news, part of the bad news, good news presentation. In fact, a few years ago, I was at a pastor's conference in California, and I happened to be slated to speak right after the keynote speaker, which is always a great spot to be in. And this keynote speaker was a very, very well-known theologian, at least well-known on the West Coast, and he's somebody that I admired for quite a long time. I'd, I'd read his material. I'd listened to some lectures that he had given. He's the former president of a seminary, and uh, I, I thought a lot of him. And during his presentation, uh, he, he actually uh, spoke against some of the things that I was just fixing to present in my paper. So as a young buck like I was, I'm sitting there thinking, well, do I alter what I was going to say? I mean, because this guy's the well-known theologian. Or do I stick with what I had researched? And what do you think I did? I, mean, I stuck with what I had researched. I mean, if I thought it was right yesterday, I'm thinking, I mean, there, he didn't do anything to change my mind. But I thought, this is going to be embarrassing. I at least needed to do it with gentleness, because he was certainly my senior and certainly a very well-respected person. And if I'm going to disagree with him, then I need to be very careful about it. I mean, famous people can be wrong, but when you get into people who are your senior and they've been doing it a long time, you need to be very careful when you start just flippantly disagreeing. Well, I got up hoping that he was kind of sleeping by that time, but he wasn't, and he, he picked out the areas of disagreement that I had, and I happened to be teaching on this section of the Word of God right here. When I was finished, some other people, uh, it, when you do those things, you have a, about 30 to 40 minutes where you do the paper, and then you have about 15 to 20 minutes or maybe more of challenges. This, I think, we took almost an hour's worth of challenges after this particular paper. It was one before you were there. This wasn't the one that you were in. Well, sure enough, uh, finally this professor's hand was raised, and he stood up and, and, uh, and dressed me down. 
in front of everybody. And one of the things that he said was, was Bruce, you're being, uh, you're overemphasizing sin, and you're not emphasizing the grace of God. And and there were there was more to it than that, but I I responded. I said certainly if I had covered the entire book of Romans, we would have emphasized the grace of God. But the point was. And the point that I made to him and to the rest of the audience, who, by the way, when, they, when he said that, just, just looked at him like, I can't believe that you just said that. you know, Because whose argument is it that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? It's not mine. I would have preferred not to make that argument. That's Paul's argument. It's Paul's argument that the immoralist needs a Savior, that the moralist needs a Savior, and that the Jew needs a Savior. So if you want to consider that negative, then say, yeah, it is. There is a problem. And in this new Christianity, this new tone in Christianity, there's a new tone in Washington, I guess there's a new tone in Christianity too, where we're not supposed to talk about that anymore. But it's a reality. There is bad news that comes before the good news. And I would love to talk about grace, and we will from here on out. But you've got to get this part down first. There is a problem, and all men are under it. In Romans 5, he's going to tell us we're all born under it. We didn't just come to be under it, we were born under it. The law presents people with the demand of God. In our constant failure to attain the goal of that demand, we recognize ourselves to be sinners and justly condemned for our failures. So only one conclusion is possible. Man without God, man without Jesus Christ, is in big trouble. His condition is one of complete hopelessness and despair. And the law, with its demand of nothing less than moral and spiritual perfection, a state to which man in his own power can never attain, creates in us, a, this whole idea creates in us a dreadful, mortifying sense of sin. And that's bad. You know, one of the most cruel things that you could do to one of your family or friends is just give them this part of Romans and leave them at that. If that's all you're going to do, skip it. You know, because that's cruel. To just get a person condemned but not give them the way out of it. And that's not what Paul does here. So again, the moral man needs justification before God. The immoral man needs justification before God. The Jew needs justification before God. There are no exceptions. And that's the bad news. But good news is on the way, and that's where we'll pick it up when we begin our study next week in chapter 3, verse 21. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the time that we spent together tonight, and I do thank you for all those folks that have are here with me tonight that have braved the weather to get out here, and I do pray now for a special hedge of protection for each and every one as they make their way back home. And Father, we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.